we, we kind of put this idea of a mentor on a pedestal. We fetishize it a little bit, right? And it's mm. like something elusive or something like super special. But in the same way, a celebrity is just a person, a mentor is just a person. All you want to do for these people is you want to get their attention. And so it's it's kind of a spectrum, right? Like at the very start, you want them to open your email. After that, you want them actually to read through the email. After that, you want to get them to a point where they actually want to respond to the email. And what's what's helped me is, you know, the more reference I've built up and, you know, started to speak to people like this, you start to understand what they actually want. Go. What's up, guys? It's Fernandez. Welcome back to the White Belt Podcast, where it's my mission to give you practical tools to develop the skills of success and self-mastery. You're going to walk away from this episode with two things. Firstly, an idea of how and where to start when teaching yourself anything. And secondly, how to find and connect with mentors who can teach yourself the things that are much harder to teach yourself. So the man behind these methods and my guest on the podcast today is James Newen. James is the man with his finger on the pulse of technology. He's the founder and CEO of Inflection AI, a consultancy that transforms businesses with AI technology, which is pretty dope. And he's also a contributing writer for Forbes magazine, where he interviews other founders and tech gurus about the Australian crypto and AI scenes. But this podcast really isn't about tech. In order for James to do what he does, he's had to become an expert in self-education and in the art of connecting with industry experts. That's really why I wanted to get him on the podcast. The most knowledgeable people in a field who would make the best mentors are often the hardest ones to reach. And the value of mentors is something you hear over and over again. So it was a blast to hear James actually detail the methods he used to create those relationships. Because it means we're not powerless if we're not one of the lucky ones who already have great mentors in that network. We can go out and actually get them. So make sure you stick around at the end of the episode. I've got a cool bonus waiting for all of you who make it through. But for now, I hope you enjoy my conversation with James Neal. Let's dive into it. Let's let's kick it off, man. I have so many questions that I want to ask you and dig into, but why don't you start off by giving a bit of context and telling the listeners what you do for work that allows you this kind of flexibility and this lifestyle? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I founded a couple of companies. Um, I've actually never officially worked for anybody else. I've always uh, kind of done my own thing. Um, so I've done everything from... Um, developing apps to uh i started an investment fund um so i worked in finance for a little bit there um my previous life was i was supposed to be uh or go into the the life of an investment banker um but i decided against that pretty early on um but i found myself uh back in the uh the investment space um over the last or it was probably about two years ago uh two three years ago uh, and then now what i do is i run a uh consultancy uh, based around ai that's a pretty crazy mix of things. Just when you say, you know, I was supposed to go into the investment banking thing, was that something that you decided pretty early on? Was that kind of what you were working towards for quite a while? Or you know, why, why, why did you want to go into the investment banking? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is an audio podcast. So most people won't uh, see me um, speaking on this, but for any of the <laughs> listeners out there, um, a little secret about me or not really secret, I'm Asian and I have Asian parents. Um, and James Newman, what? <laughs> what? What? Um, yeah. So the context there is my parents um, were, it, it's, it's a really interesting mix in terms of they were incredibly supportive um, and really gave me all the opportunities I ever needed uh, growing up and, and even to this day. But um, 
they also had a, a fairly traditional idea um, or encouraged me uh, down a fairly traditional path to uh, pursue a more stable, uh, stable profession. Um, and, you know, mm. if it's not a doctor, if it's not a lawyer, you know, investing, investment banking, um, you know, fits, fits the mold there. So, so that, was, that was kind of my path into wanting to pursue investment banking for, for quite um, a big majority of, of growing up in my teenage years. But um, I kind of got to the stage maybe at 19, um, 19, where I just had uh, a little bit of a, it wasn't a crisis, it wasn't an existential crisis. I guess it was an inflection point. I, I got to a point where I started to think about my life if I was waking up doing that every single day, you know, waking up, looking at spreadsheets. Yeah, working for somebody that kind of controlled my destiny. And a little bit of context about me is, you know, I, I don't take to, uh, I don't take to other people telling me what to do very well. <laughs> but, sure. Um, in terms of yeah, pursuing a lifestyle um, that was less structured, um, there was no formal path, right? So a lot of my friends at the time were going through internships for whether it's investment banking or managing consulting firms or you know these well-established companies, um, and so they had, if you will, a um, you know a path, a well-trodden path about you know here are the um, systematic processes and steps that you have to uh take in order to achieve x um but that mm. that didn't exist at the time um for the startup ecosystem um, yeah. or just you know in startups in general so what i ended up doing was i was like okay what's an intersection between um what's an intersection between you know some of my background which was finance at the time and what i wanted to pursue which was uh, the startup space and so I thought, oh, maybe investing, uh, maybe venture capital was something that would be uh, a good avenue to, to pursue. So I, I literally just cold emailed uh, a number of uh, investment firms, uh, VC firms that existed uh, in Melbourne, and there weren't too many at the time. And they all rejected me. Um, yeah, they, they all said no. And uh, at, at the time, again, like my mentality was I just want to learn um, this is just a way for me to uh, kind of start this journey of like perpetual self-growth or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so I, I decided, no, I'm just, I have nothing to lose. I'm just going to go back to them and, and mm. essentially try to get a job. Long story short, I ended up getting three interviews um, with uh, all three of the ones that I called emailed. Um, and then I chose one and I found myself a mentor and the rest is kind of history. That's incredible, man. That's, I can imagine it would have been quite, you know, even if you don't, see it as a, a big crisis or you know it would still be have been it's almost like that glass shatters like maybe that's not the thing that i've always thought it was going to be and maybe it actually doesn't tick all the boxes i thought it would that i thought it would I, I contrast that with my own mindset i guess at that age and up until a few years ago i definitely would have used the absence of that north star as an excuse for inaction, you know what I mean? Mm. As an excuse to just kind of sit back and be like, well, you know, there's all those other people out there that know what they want to do. It must be easy for them. But for me, who doesn't know, you know, who wasn't just lucky enough to be born with that, you know, that really became a big part of that. That was, that was really the dominant mindset for me at that time. It's a, little, a little bit victim mentality. Contrast that with what, you know, the kind of, the kind of action you're taking, like you said, there's no, um, if you're in an internship, if you're at university working towards a field of finance or business or whatever it is, you've got to put the trust in somebody else that what you're going to be learning is going to prepare you at least, or it's going to equip you to go out and work in that field, right? Mm. But when there's something, you know, these new frontiers you're talking about, like startups, like crypto, like AI, mm. there's no uni, there's no university degree. And by the time there is, that means you've already missed, you've yeah, already missed yeah, the bus. Yeah, so true. Yeah. So. And I think especially, especially with crypto 
And I think you see it a bit with AI as well, but I just remember when, when crypto got really popularized, there was so much uneducated speculation. There was mm. so much noise. There was everyone had an opinion. Everyone was an expert. And, you know, there, there were just, it was so hard. Obviously, some people have made some really good money. And obviously, there was mm. such power behind this blockchain, blockchain technology. But there was just so much bullshit. Mm. And, and so, and I think that, you know, with these new frontiers, and everyone's so excited and everyone wants to become an expert as soon as possible. But it makes it really, really hard coming as an uninitiated person. You don't mm. have that university degree or that, that you know, just the time in order to look back and analyze, okay, what's happened here? I can draw from conclusions. It's all, it's all new. So I want to kind of talk to you about your research process mm. between, you know, you mentioned mentors, but there's also some self-directed learning in there. You've always been a very avid self-educator as long as I've known you. So what does your research process look like and how do you discern what's noise and what's valuable information because it can all when you don't know much seem so samey you know yeah such a good question um and yeah so there's there's layers to this right but the most simple answer is you just start and this is such like this is such a cliche um cliche piece of advice so i don't want to um belabor it too much but you there's this analogy um i don't know do you know much about how spiders make webs uh no this seems like I love a, this analogy already. It seems like a super random uh, segue. Right? No, no, no. Please dig in. But spiders, when when they make webs, they just throw their web into the wind. Like just they they, they just throw the um their silk into the wind, and wherever that spider web catches onto, that becomes um, the point at which they build the web around. Right. So Duh. they don't like go out and forage and be like, oh, I really want to like make my web here or on this branch or on this leaf. They literally mm. just throw their spider web out into the wind, wherever it lands, then they start to work around it. And so mm-hmm. that analogy really applies to how I approach researching or learning anything, right? You just you just start with anything. It, it could literally be any article, any topic, um, any uh, you know buzzword or terminology. And when you're first starting, you don't know anything. You li- Like there's, there's the layers, you don't know what you don't know yet, right? Of course, so, yeah. So the way I start learning anything, whether it's crypto, whether it's AI, whether it's, you know, learning about how spiders make webs, um, (laughs) it starts with a Google search and we're in a crazy age where all the information that we could ever possibly want or imagine is publicly available to us on the internet. So I always start with the Google search, you know, you could just start with crypto and then you could literally be like, what is cryptocurrency? And then it'll give you some sort of rudimentary um, explanation or perhaps it gives you a really detailed explanation. And that's really good because there's going to be so many terms, so many buzz terms in there that you don't understand, right? And so it essentially starts different rabbit holes. And so if you think about this as like a um, like a, a web of, I'm using a lot of web analogies here, <laughs> of a web of knowledge, right? So if you're drawing a mind map, you draw at the very, um, and I, I, do, I work off a lot of mind maps as well. Like, Cool. I would say, yeah, I would say when I'm learning, I like to be a reasonably tactile learner um, as well as an auditory learner. I just learn better with... Um, yeah, I just learn better with audio. Um, but, you know, when I'm actually taking notes, I start with a mind map. I start with something in the middle, which is the main topic, right? You can start with crypto, you can start with anything. And then I'll start to branch off that and write um, any words that I don't know that come up, right? So I may yeah. do a branch off that and write blockchain. And then I'm like, okay, well, what's blockchain? And you just literally start on that rabbit hole. And what you do is you keep on 
Googling all the words that you don't know, start writing down and defining those things. So it's like, okay, I don't know what blockchain is. And then so um, you go from crypto, you go to blockchain um, and then potentially Bitcoin comes up and then you just start uh, defining these terms so you can explain it to yourself, right? And the explaining it to yourself thing can be a formal thing that you try to do where you try to speak to yourself. I've, I've done this as well. You're actually trying to speak to yourself and explain, okay, if you ask yourself the question, what is Bitcoin? If you can't explain it in a way that makes sense to yourself, it's not going to make sense to anybody else either, right? So sure, whether you want to sure. be, you know, kind of weird like me and speak out loud or what I also do is I, I do, a, I write a lot, right? So if you can structure it into, it doesn't have to be something you publish either. It's just, can you structure it into a sentence or a paragraph and explain what is Bitcoin or what is cryptocurrency or what is blockchain, any of these things. And so that's that's how I essentially approach learning. Um, and the, the point at which you're able to discern um, what's actually important to understand is if you can't explain something and explain it as if you were explaining it to a six-year-old, like that's a really good litmus test as well. If you can't explain it like that, mm. you don't know it well enough. And so there is the idea of first principles, like, um, you know, of the people today that uh, people may recognize speaking about it, but Elon Musk speaks a lot about it. Um, there's a blog called uh, Farnham Street Blog uh, or just Farnham Street um, or The Knowledge Project, which is another podcast uh, it's by a guy called Shane Parrish. He writes a lot about uh, mental models and first principles. Warren Buffett's uh, main investment uh, partner, Charlie Munger, speaks a lot about first principles mm -hmm. and mental models as well. But essentially what it means is it's the things that don't change, right? So if you think about the laws of physics and you think about, you know, the first, second, third law of thermodynamics or something like that, or gravity, like these are the sorts of things that don't change. They're the actual foundations. They're the very um, structures on which we build everything else on, right? And so when you when you start to learn concepts from first principles, then that, that allows your uh, understanding to be a lot more robust. And this actually goes back to when my dad used to teach me maths. So again, being Asian, my first language was maths. Um, <laughs> And uh, I remember when I used to, and this is like in primary school, um, when he's teaching me about multiplication or anything like that. And I remember him always asking me, he's like, why? You need to understand why you're doing these things. And I'm like, mm -hmm. at the time, I'm like, okay, dad. Yeah, like that's okay. I, I just want to get this done so I can go out and play sport or do whatever. Um, yeah. But he was trying to explain to me that, okay, if you don't know the first principles of multiplication, if you don't know the theory, if you don't know why you've done it or how you've done it, the actual rules that never change, like the answer to nine times 16 is different to seven times eight. But the rules of multiplying, it's nine groups of 16 or 16 groups of nine, that doesn't change, right? And so that philosophy uh, really applies to everything else when you're learning anything else. Um, you could be learning surfing, you could be learning martial arts, you could be learning, you know, crypto, you could be um, learning how to write. Like if you actually learn about the things that don't change um, and the real principles on top of which everything else is built, that's really helpful. So like in crypto for your listeners, like cryptocurrency started um, uh, from the Bitcoin white paper. Um, which was the Bitcoin was the first official cryptocurrency, right? So if you go off and you try to learn all these different cryptocurrencies and you don't actually understand, you know, what is Bitcoin and what is the blockchain technology mm. that was born from that, then yeah, everything you're building um, in terms of your, your knowledge blocks is going to be very fragile. Um, the same is true if you're literally trying to learn everything else. It's like, it's like learning how to run before you learn how to walk. Um, and sure, so, sure. so when it's a topic that you have no idea of how to approach, like you do just, you know, throw your web into the wind, start anywhere, because eventually what you'll find is because you know none of the keywords or none of the, the buzz terms or any of the terminology, you're going to have to look up everything. And then yeah. as you'll see, 
like the word blockchain may come up a lot and a lot and a lot. And then you're like, oh, okay, well, I've looked this up or Googled it like five different times. I've written it in my mind map. I start to kind of understand what that is. And then you start to dig into that. And when you think you're at a, a level of, you know, you potentially think you're at a level of proficiency. When I say proficiency, it's all relative, right? But when you think you kind of understand what's going on, that's when you actually have to try to explain it to yourself, explain it to your friends. Mm-hmm. Be able to like write some sort of cons- concise, um, yeah, concise, uh, sensible, logical um, paragraph or piece or whatever it is as a way to test yourself on your understanding. That's absolutely huge. And I think if you, re- if you unpack... There was so much gold in what you just said, but if you unpack that, you've really you've always got a, a, a system for going and applying and learning absolutely everything, like you said, because get off the X, just start, throw yourself in mm. there, because before you know absolutely anything, yeah, you know, maybe you've got a bit of a background coming in from, you know, like if you were able to go and learn a physical skill, we've got a, a solid base of understanding with which to kind of bring to the table. But if you're going straight into something that's completely new, like, you know, say if I was to go and learn about cryptocurrency, I have no idea. So for me to try and map out the perfect approach before I even start researching, it's just not feasible. Yeah. But if you start by using these active techniques, these active active learning methods like mind mapping, and you start to, you know, just write down, okay, hmm, this is a concept, this is a concept, this is a concept, and then start to identify as you go along which one of these appear to be these first principles things. Mm-hmm. And then what you're doing is you're not only deconstructing this topic, but you're also starting to sequence, you're also starting to prioritize which one of these are most fundamental to this topic? Which one of these are in order of priority? Should I go and really be able to understand? And then once you've identified that, then using what you're talking about by the writing or teaching yourself or teaching somebody else, can I condense this idea, this philosophy, this complicated concept down into its most bare bones parts? And can I communicate that effectively? And if you can, then there's a good chance that you've really gone and, and you've understood it. Yes, yeah, but I don't think, yeah, yeah, and that that three-step kind of one, two, three combination already provides you with such a you know a, a valuable frame for whatever because you're not going to get caught up reading through the forums and people telling you to do this and telling you to do that. You're going to start with understanding what these fundamentals are, and then you're going to be like, hmm. So is this what is what this person's saying sound like bullshit? Sound like speculation? Yeah. Or does it sound like they're talking about something that's actually grounded in one of these first principles? Totally, man. Yeah, yeah. totally. Like I, I would go, I would go further and just say, like, ultimately, what you're, what you're trying to do when you're learning is you have to test yourself. Um, and this gets a little bit like, there's, there's levels to this as well, right? So, ultimately, you need feedback to learn. Like, like mm-hmm. that's, that's true on everything, right? So, yeah. The problem with, oh, I guess a, a problem with a lot of these, um these ideas that aren't tangible or these skill sets that aren't tangible, right? Whether it's like learning something that is, you know, abstract, something like cryptocurrency or AI, or whether it's just learning in general. Um, Sometimes feedback is not always obvious what feedback is, right? So I'll give you an example. If you're learning to shoot a basketball, your feedback is if you get it in the hoop or you miss it. Like that's feedback. You're doing something right if it goes in, you're doing something wrong if you miss. So that feedback is very explicit, it's very clear. Now, if you're learning about um, cryptocurrency or AI or literally anything that doesn't have uh, like an explicit uh, point of feedback or form of feedback, then it's your responsibility. And this is reference that you build up um, is to understand and try to identify what is the feedback. And that's why I like to test myself. So that's why I try to try to explain it. And it's like you were saying before, if you can condense it down, if you can explain it, that you're testing yourself to give yourself feedback, right? So that's why the, the tighter your feedback loop is, 
the more you can learn um, and the faster you can learn. So you always want to be tightening that feedback loop all the time, all mm. the time. And so that's why when you're writing a mind map, um, the feedback loop is super, super tight because you're like, okay, this is a new word that comes up. Do I know it? That's literally a test, right? So like sure. people, the associations people have with tests from school and things like that is like, it's boring. You don't want to do it. Um, but really the only way you learn is through tests. So I guess from that sense, you know, how like the idea of tests is good, but I, I probably agree. Like the way schools do it aren't necessarily the most conducive to people learning because it's not, not individualized to everybody. Right. Um, but when, when you're thinking about, okay, so what works for me is the mind maps is the, okay, I, I need to test myself. Do I understand that definition? I need to write my, write it down. But if we look at the first principles here of learning or tr- the first principles of trying to find the first principles to get a little bit meta sure, um, sure. is the idea that, okay, how quickly can I test my understanding of a topic, right? So you look, you look up a word, you look up something. If you don't know what it is, that's you testing yourself and you get feedback. If you're like, oh, I recognize what blockchain is. I can explain it. This, this sentence makes sense to me. Great. Like that's positive feedback. If you're like, nah, I don't really understand it yet. That's, you know, negative feedback, negative feedback, not in a bad way, but it just tells you that, okay, I need to try that again. In the same way, if you miss, mm-hmm. you take a basketball shot and you miss it, like, okay, great. I just take another shot. I try something else. And so that's all it is. It's just iteration cycles. Absolutely, man. That's, that feedback is so fundamental to any part of the learning process. And I think often, often there's, there's meta learning stuff that, you know, the stuff about the process, the diving in the nitty gritty about how to do things. I think so much of it is applied to things that are like nice to know. You know what I mean? People, mm. you know, often meta learning, I see it be bantered about in terms of like, oh, learn this instrument for fun or learn this language yeah, for yeah, fun yeah. and do it, you know, as a little project in isolation. Uh, and I do that myself, dude. It's it's so much fun and it's so fulfilling and there's, that's, there's so much of a place for that. But at the same time, what you're talking about here is not going and learning something for fun or not going some, learning something because anyone told it to. This is stuff that you've gone and learned and processes that you've applied to your own career, recognizing you're in a place that you don't want to be, kind of having some idea of being like, I kind of want to get over here, but there's a bunch of shit I need to know and need to learn in order for me to get myself made to be. Mm. And so this process has allowed you to not only come to much a much deeper understanding of a subject matter, but actually monetize that understanding in terms of consultancy and in terms of starting your own business and in terms of you getting your place in your life and your career to a point where you actually want it to be. And, you know, I think that that is, that's not a nice to know thing. That is fundamental to, you know, to human existence and to anyone living in this age, because what is your competitive advantage if you're always coming out of university with exactly the same thing as everybody else, you know? So I think I really wanted to highlight that. And I think that's, you know, even before thinking about who I wanted to interview for this podcast, that's one of the biggest reasons you came up in my mind. But you mentioned, you know, as someone that does that so well, but you, you mentioned mentors before and, this comes back to why feedback is so important because when you're just by yourself, mm. it can be hard to obtain feedback. And if you shoot a basketball shot and you decided to try holding your breath before that and it went in, you might erroneously, <laughs> yeah, you know, you might erroneously, you know, attribute the fact that you got the shot yeah. in to holding your breath. Oh, I hold, held my breath that time. It's like a superstition. Oh, well, I, I looked to the left before I shot. That's yeah, the thing yeah, that they yeah, yeah. in. It's hard to identify what thing that I change in that actually help you along that process. So a mentor is a fantastic way of actually getting feedback from someone that knows so much more, guiding you in that direction, pointing the kind of bow and arrow in the right direction so you can fly off. But again, looking at the victim mindset and stuff like that, when I first heard about mentors and the value of mentors and reading books and people like, you have to go get a mentor. I was like, well, fuck, man. I don't don't know anyone. I don't have any mentors. I don't have anyone in my life. I'm not lucky like that, that, you know, 
just is going to give me all the answers. But I think another thing that you've done incredibly, like you said, you cold emailed a bunch of different firms and didn't take no for an answer. I want to find out more about that. Not only that, but you've also written articles for Forbes and you've actually interviewed some pretty prominent people. Melanie Perkins, CEO of Canva, Angela Duckworth, author of the best-selling book, Grit, Tony Ward from, you know, Dropbox Australia. These weren't people in your life already. They were, oh yeah, Tony, cool. I'm just going to, I'm just going to call them up. (laughs) I'll just hit him up, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you didn't use not potentially having mentors in your life as an excuse, but you actively went out and sought them. And I want to dig into your process about how, how did you get in the room with those people? Yeah, for sure, dude. I think just to answer your to answer your question from before, actually, you didn't. It wasn't really a question, but like the, the when you were sharing your experience or um, your mindset originally in terms of how you saw a mentor, um, this actually came from my first mentor when I asked him the same thing. I, I said, "You know, how do you find a mentor?" And his answers always stuck with me. It's just super simple. A mentor is just someone who's smarter than you. Like that's that's it, right? Mm-hmm. And this kind of like in line with the the name of this podcast. And I know you and I are both big fans of like Ida Patel, um, who essentially talks about everybody being a teacher. And that's a mentality that like is, is really, really important to, well, for me at least, it's been really important to reflect on um, is that, you know, we, we kind of put this idea of a mentor on a pedestal. We fetishize it a little bit, right? And it's mm. like something elusive or something like super special. But in the same way, a celebrity is just a person, a mentor is just a person. Um, and what are they quote unquote mentoring you for? Like they're just teaching you stuff, man. And so like if you're just finding somebody who's a little bit further ahead in your path, it could be like, oh, you're, you say basketball again, you don't have to find an NBA player to be your mentor. You can just find somebody who's like a reasonably proficient amateur player to give you a little, a few pointers. They're further along on their path than you are. So they can just give you advice, right? And it just becomes like stepping stones. How do you therefore, um, yeah, how do you just learn a little bit more than where you're at today? And then everybody becomes your mentor and everybody becomes your teacher. And it really just brings down those barriers to potentially what you may see as, as ex- exclusive. Um, mm. Because, yeah, everybody, like a lot of my mentors now, like my partner's my mentor, you know, my parents, my mentor, you know, my friends are my mentors in different areas of my life. They're teaching me things that, I'm not currently at, um, you know, this stage or the the point that they are in those areas or those domains of life. So I just wanted to touch on that. Um, yeah, for sure. In terms, in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of how I got in in a, in a room with um, those sorts of people, or how did I, uh, you know, yeah, how did I end up interviewing those people, or how do I build my network? Essentially, um, there's a few things with that. Uh, to go back to what I did when you know I was first starting things and I just cold emailed a bunch of people. I think that's. I think there's a quality within that that a lot of people, um, yeah, that's really beneficial. Um, and I think that's just like an action bias. And again, I, I didn't come up with this, like an action yeah. bias. It comes from a lot of people who are way smarter than me. Um, but the idea of an action bias is, you said it before, just just go out and do things. I think that's the first thing to, to note. Um, when people look at whether it's people I've interviewed, whether it's, you know, other podcasters um, in terms of the sorts of people they have or brands associated with whoever, when they look at people's social proof, they sometimes forget that, you know, for every one, one like uh, guest or one person that they really want to get on board or they get connected with, they've probably reached out to 50 people, 100 people, right? So that's that's the other thing about like when I – yeah, I guess that's the other thing about just success porn, right? Like it doesn't really spotlight and illuminate all these other things that actually go on in the background. Um, so like 
that that's 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 something that I would just keep in mind. Like how I got in touch with a lot of these people. Like I, I it's just tons and tons and tons of like physics out to the world, like velocity. You just do mm. a lot of different things. Um, and that's not to say that's not to say that there isn't a, some sort of method to the madness. Because yeah, you have to like if you think about the world in a probabilistic way, meaning that everything is probability, right? Um, then you say, okay, well, if I have one percent chance of getting in touch with um you know angela duckworth or i have a one percent chance of getting in touch with whoever you're trying to get in touch with gary v or anything like that right you can a one percent chance if you fire off 100 emails you know probability says you have a decent chance then of potentially getting in touch with them at least starting a conversation and so you just think about the numbers and you just play the numbers of life um then then you think then to go another layer deeper, okay, if I have a 1% chance, if I just send out cold emails, how do I take it from a 1% chance to a 5% chance? Because then instead of sending 100 emails, I can send 20 and I may get in touch with them, right? And so then you just start to think about, okay, how do I increase my probability of doing that? So whether it's um, getting in touch with someone like Melanie Perkins um, from Canva or, um, you know, Angela Duckworth, like what you think about there is, okay, how do I become somebody that they actually want to speak with? Like how do I actually, and again, this gets, this is a little bit of a cliche and this gets paid a lot in terms of like give value first or make sure you're valuable. And I, I never really found like from a principle level, like, yeah, I agree with it, but I never really found that piece of advice helpful because it wasn't practical. I was like, oh, I'm not really valuable. How do I help these people? Like, mm. like I didn't really understand that. Um, and so when I put myself in their shoes and I'm able to empathize with them, then you can start to understand, you know, Angela Duckworth, um, she, I, I wouldn't say she necessarily, like she's so down to earth, such a lovely person. Um, I wouldn't say she necessarily cares about, um, you know, the glitz and the glamour or trying to get her name out, right? She, she really cares about um, what she does. Uh, she's a MacArthur Genius Grant. Um, she works um, on, uh, I think it's called the Character Lab. Um, I'm going to get it wrong, but um, her her book, Grit, uh, she, she essentially works on that full time in terms of really... Um, really aligning herself with how does how does she uh, integrate a level or, or teach and encourage people to integrate a level of perseverance in their life like that's just something she really cares about and so like if, if I've done the the legwork to actually understand that and I've reached out to her and I've positioned um, the opportunity to, to be on a podcast with her or um, to interview her or feature her as a way to really um, to, to really support her mission then that's something that's valuable to her and valuable something that's uh, is relative and that's why that's why I find it really um, I find it a little bit reductive when people just say oh just just like add value because value to everybody is, is so subjective and it changes and so the meta principle here or you know the principle that's actually useful for people to imbibe is not the idea of you know be valuable to somebody else it's how do you identify what is valuable to somebody else and so you know when I interviewed uh, Melanie Perkins. Um, I was writing for Forbes at the time or contributing to Forbes, I should say. So that was, um, you know, they had just completed, uh, I can't remember what series round, but they had just been valued at 340 mil. And so I was like, okay, how do I help them get that publicity out? Um, and so that was valuable to Canva at the time. And Melanie Perkins, obviously being um, the founder of Canva, that was uh, her responsibility. And so I'm putting myself in the mindset of a founder being like, okay, what if, if I was in Melanie Perkins's um, shoes at the time, what would I actually care about? What would be valuable to me is how do I, you know, help my business get, gain more exposure, gain more publicity. Okay. I um, am able to uh, write a contributing article for Forbes for, uh, for Canva. This is going to be valuable to her. So I reached out with that in mind. So, so from taking that from hypothetically, 
or 1% or likely, you know, 0.001% of actually getting in touch with her, having something valuable, then when I frame it that way, um, or I'm able to highlight or articulate what the benefit is to her, that percentage of actually being able to carve out some time with her, et cetera, et cetera, goes from 0.0001% to maybe it's 2% or maybe it's 5% or maybe it's 20% because Forbes is a big brand or maybe it's, you know, 30%, um, all those sorts of things. And then you start to double up and you're like, okay, how do I increase that probability even more? And so when I've, whether it's people I've had on my podcast or, or anything else, um, when I've tried to expand my network, I just think through what increases my probability, right? So a warm intro versus a cold intro, that increases your probability again. If you can frame, I guess, the value offering or, or the reason or the hook that you're actually trying to get them on, that incre- increases the probability again. Um, so then you're just thinking about all these things. If you've interviewed a whole lot of people in their niche or that are very relevant to them or they potentially would want to see uh, their name next to that increases your probability again so it's just okay what's your baseline probability that any single person could do because everybody has access well not every like majority of people in the western world have access to the internet can send out an email well okay maybe it's half a percent that you could actually get in contact with a big name all right so half a percent means you have to send out 200 emails for everybody well I don't really want to sit at a computer and send out 200 emails. Sure, you have to develop the grit to be able to do that. And like that's part mm. of you know the lifestyle that I've chosen. Um, but uh, j- just to work smarter and be more efficient, how do I take that half a percent up to 5% so I only have to send 20 emails? And then it's everything I just said then and it's all these other things that just you stack them on top of each other and they just increase your probability. Absolutely, man. It's that... I think what you're talking about, and this has been a really running theme throughout this conversation, is the intersection of the hard work and the smart work. Mm. You know, not having the perfect approach before you start and expecting you to know everything before you even get to the, you know, get to the table. But shooting at that spider's web into the wind, seeing where it sticks, starting somewhere, starting by putting in the effort, you know, and just volume, repetition over and over again, sending out a bunch. Because when you start and you have no value, you can either use that as a reason that like, well, you know, fuck, you know, I'm, I'm screwed. I have nothing to add to Angela, to Angela Duckworth or Melanie Perkins. Well, maybe that's the case. And maybe you start with that 0.5% chance of a response. But then over time, as you send out more and more of these emails, or maybe you get one response out of that, however many, you can start to look at what worked well and what didn't work well. And that's when you start to kind of define to yourself, okay, what is adding value? What are, okay, maybe, and you start to give your, look at your own feedback. All the no's are feedback. It's not no, oh shit, I, I suck, I'm not worthy. It's feedback. What didn't I do here that I did do well here? And try and tease out those common themes. Oh shit, maybe this email that she responded to was way shorter. Maybe I should start to mm. condense my responses. Start to just try and identify. And that's like you said, how you stack these little successes. And once you have one small success, then it's going to be far better. You can be like, oh yeah, I'm reaching out to you as the podcast owner of this. I've also talked to X person in your niche who you might know, blah, blah, blah. And each value stacks on top of the other one. And totally, man. So, yeah, I think that's such an, that's an awesome way. Again, another little roadmap that people can use. But I just want to... Just on this topic as well, I remember us having a conversation a while back and you were saying something really interesting to me about interviewing some pretty interesting people without actually having released anything yet. Mm. And I think that there's a, this kind of shows up in startups a little bit as well. Um, and it's a really interesting little, not, it can't be used in every single situation, but maybe if you can explain a little bit about how you went about using a future project in order to, you know, kind of entice people to get on board and talk to you and stuff like that, even when you didn't actually have any demonstrated body of work out there yet. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that comes, 
so it comes down to a little bit of just like understanding psychology, right? Um, and understanding how to frame things. And these, this doesn't mean um, be disingenuous and say things that aren't true. Um, so I, I'm not advocating that. It's just, mm. under, it's just to say that, okay, there are certain things that pique people's attention, pique people's curiosity and certain reasons why people would want to be part of something, whether it's FOMO, fear of missing out, um, whether it's, you know, they want to be associated with certain brands, something I alluded to before. So um, as an example, when I first started my um I was doing a, a podcast for a little bit um, and before it had launched, I got, um, yeah, I got people from Facebook, uh, the, the head of AI from Facebook, uh, sorry, head of AI from Google, um, you know, AI researchers from Facebook, uh, Microsoft, IBM, like huge, huge names. Um, I got them on board before we actually launched. So I was able to launch with all those, all those episodes. And so yeah. essentially what I did there was, again, to, to frame it as I did before, understood my baseline probability. At the time, I had a level of um, experience already in terms of my credentials. I'd written for Forbes or contributed on Forbes and, and things like that. So I knew my probability was more than 0.5% to use sure, the example from sure. before, right? But yeah. again, how do I increase that further? Well, I, I, I thought about the idea of FOMO, number one. So I said, okay, well, what, what, sort of, uh, what sort of brands would... So if I wanted to get somebody on Facebook on, who would they have wanted to see also on the podcast or who have also been lined up for the podcast that would make them excited to be on board, right? So you kind of just look at the competitors in that um, respect, right? So Facebook would then be, okay, I want to get people on from Google, Microsoft, IBM, you know, competitors mm. there. Um, for Google, therefore, it would be Facebook, Microsoft, IBM. And you kind of just see that, you know, you go around the chain. If you get the other people on board, everything becomes really easy. And so... How I then reached out to people was um, I used the social proof of having discussions with these people um, and people I had worked with before. And so uh, I, I hadn't officially launched anything, but if there's this idea of a, a red rope, um, if you think about a red rope at a club, right? So the reason there's a long line at a club is so everybody thinks the club is really hot that night or is like a lot's going on. Like everybody wants to get there, right? So scarcity uh, increases the value of things, another psychological principle. So if you see something as exclusive, you potentially want it more. Um, and this is why, you know, things like Rolex or Ferraris that only make X number of cars per year, they're seen as luxury brands because it's scarce, it's hard to get, it's exclusive. And so when you start to think about it from that perspective, you're like, okay, well, if I, number one, can make this exclusive, um, if I can make my podcast exclusive and when I frame uh, my outreach to people, again, we think about this baseline probability, how do we increase that? And the framing is part of it and how you actually structure an email, how you write this email, you're just giving yourself as um, increase in probability as much as you can. And so what I did to frame the actual email was, okay, I'm only selecting X number of guests. Or I'm only um, uh, making an effort to select guests that have X, right? And so again, if you think about psychology and you, you, you put your... Um, one of, the, one, one of the principles is if you appeal to something that uh, somebody uh, cares about or like builds their identity off, then that is going to be more emotionally, um, yeah, that, that's going to emotionally engage them more, right? So if somebody really cares about, um, I don't know, somebody really cares about uh, their accomplishments at work, their professional uh, accomplishments or their CV, if you're able to frame something like that and, you know, able to provide a thoughtful compliment or thoughtful acknowledgement in terms of, you know, this is the work they've done uh, in this specific area, then that's going to be more emotionally resonant with them. And so they're going to pay more attention to it. And all you want to do for these people is you want to get their attention. 
And so it's it's kind of a spectrum, right? Like at the very start, you want them to open your email. After that, you want them actually to read through the email. After that, you want to get them to a point where they actually want to respond to the email. These are the sorts of things that you have to think about. And mm. so when I'm going about uh, building that podcast or really for anything I want to launch, whether it's a new company, whether it's a, a new product, anything like that, you have to build some sort of buzz around it. You have to give people a reason. You have to increase the value or the perceived value of what it is for because everything is a value exchange. So people are going to give up their time, whether it's on a podcast or something like that, um, or whether it's, you know, trial a new product that you're launching or trust you as a new vendor if you're starting a company and you're providing a service to them, or they, they, they're exchanging something, right? So the normal currency they exchange is uh, money, of course, but other people are exchanging time. And what do they expect in return? So um, if you're... Um, Say you're, I don't know, a writer. Somebody's paying you for words. That's the, they're exchanging money for the words that you can write them. Um, so if you're running a podcast with somebody, then it's a value exchange. You have to think about what is the currency that they're willing to exchange for their time. And so, again, this is just how you frame the, the value proposition. It, whether it's about marketing, whether it's about positioning, however, you, you know, like the verbiage you want to use around that, it's really just around, okay, what do they care about again? Um, and then how do, yeah, how, how do I make it as clear as possible to them and how, what is the quickest way that they can understand what is valuable to them, right? So when I'm reaching out to a podcast to try to get somebody on from Facebook, I want them to understand that, okay, I'm only selecting a few people in the tech industry, number one. Um, number two, uh, you, I have some level of credibility because this is what I've done before. Number three is here are the other people that are due to be on the podcast or who I'm speaking with to have on the podcast, right? All those things make the value offering more valuable to them. And that is why they potentially will have a conversation with you. And then from there, it's really, again, come back to whether it's psychology or learning sales skills or whatever it is, it's getting them to a phone call because getting to a phone call or getting into another email, they're giving you a chance. They're buying in, right? They're saying, I'm curious. I potentially want to uh, understand what I could get from this. This is all implicit in what is being said. They're never explicitly saying these things. They're like, oh, I'm interested. Really what they're saying is, oh, I want to see what you could do for me. I want to see mm. that. And, and again, it's not as, it doesn't have to be that transactional in terms of how you think about it, but it, everything implicitly is a value exchange. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's just how I think about it. That's, there's so much gold in there. That's such a, such a great answer to that question. I think also listeners are really going to walk away. Again, if you listen back to that with, you just identified three key actionable things you can walk away. And if you want to do this, if you want to increase your network, if you want to, you know, demystify the access to you know these oh wow this person this name or whatever it is everyone at the end of the day still wants something still values particular things and if you can do a bit of background research using the techniques that we identified at the start to identify what value that person might be looking for and then figure out maybe you can't get that right now but if you can and who can you get that for and how can you start to maybe double back to that person later on with that value with something else there you know that they're looking for in order to stack those little stack your own value and stack your own offering and stack your own ability to offer people things. And then that's going to continue on off into the future. Um, so man, yeah, dope. I, I'm conscious that we're, we only got a couple of minutes left here. Um, but, uh, for a little soft deadline there, but, um, <laughs> um, one quick fire question before, before we leave. All right. Just um, one, just one, just one. I promise. <laughs> what, um, what hardship are you most grateful for? What hardship? Um, it's hard, like when you just have to pick one. Um, mm. 
I definitely like hardship's all relative as well, right? Like, of course. Um, yeah. If I if I had to pick one, uh, I reckon like during high school, I I, I reckon I was uh, I was like. I grappled a lot with uh, insecurity, like maybe it's every teenager, I don't know, but like feeling quite like, not ostracized because that's that's probably too strong a word, but like I always felt kind of amiss. Like I always um, I always found it really hard to reconcile like where I fit in. And that was something really big in high school, um, whether it's like feeling on the outer, feeling like lonely and all these things again, like I'm able to retrospectively put labels to it. That for me, um, I felt a lot. Like I really, really, really felt that. Um, and I think that's really shaped a lot of the reasons why I do things or how I do things now, potentially why as well. Like, I think it's, it's a little bit of that narrative of having a chip in your shoulder, on your shoulder. And I wasn't explicitly bullied, but I definitely felt left out. I didn't feel like I belonged. I didn't feel necessarily fulfilled. Um, I wouldn't say I was unhappy, but I was like, I, I felt lonely for sure when I was, was growing up. And I think that at a time where, um, at a time where, you know, whether it's you're going through adolescence or, you know, there's everybody else seems to feel like they have friends and things like that. Like that's something I felt with a really, really strong, potent emotional intensity. And I think because of that, it's something that I really remember a lot. Um, there's other things uh, happened throughout my life that, you know, that have been quite impactful that I, I guess I would, would classify as hardship. And like from an objective point of view, yeah, they were way harder than feeling left out than um, sure. yeah, feeling left out in, in high school or, or growing up as a teenager. But like that one thing of feeling left out, I think has cultivated a lot of this, the values and the practices that I do now. Like I would say that I'm very introspective now. Like I, I like, I like the journaling practice. I, I like thinking and reflecting a lot. And that came from, feeling on the outer when I was, you know, when I was growing up, because if you don't feel like you belong anywhere else, then you start to be, you start to direct that thought and reflection on yourself, whether it's, you know, at the start, potentially being self-critical, whether it's, um, you know, questioning a lot about, you know, life, yourself, everything else, like that has been the basis for me forming a really important foundation that's benefited me for the rest of my life up until now. So I think in that way, if I had to choose one for now, um, that's what I would say. I wouldn't necessarily, again, it's not objectively, you know, the, the worst thing that's ever happened to anybody sure, or sure. myself, but I think it has been really, um, instrumental in terms of, you know, building a foundation and, and pointing me in this direction. Yeah, dude. And I think precisely because everyone's familiar with that feeling and it doesn't have to be some turn your life upside down event that, you know, that has to, you, you bounce back from, I think precisely because everyone can identify with that feeling on some level because that was so potent and so powerful for you at that time to look at you now and ha- look at how you've used that experience to inform your own life and to frame that in a, ter- in a sense of gratitude and in a sense of how you've used that now to make sure that you have systems in place in order to manage that chip on your shoulder or whatever it may be. None of this is perfect or easy or, you know, just like a fucking, oh, yeah, cool, now I'm over that. But I think precisely, again, because everyone can identify on some level with that feeling, it's so valuable to look at someone who's taken that and being like, no, you know what? I am going to reframe this. I am going to be great, grateful for this. I can take the lesson from this and I can set up systems in order to manage that in my life right now. And I think that just to, to remember that is, is hugely powerful. So that's a great answer. And I think it's a, it's a great place to, to leave the podcast up as well, man. So, um, right on. It's been a blast. Yeah, dude, this is phenomenal, man. So much here to unpack. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I really enjoyed that. Where can people go if people enjoyed the, you know, the stuff that you're talking about here? 
where can people go to hear you riff a little bit more on these things? Um, I, I don't. Or, yeah, or I don't. I don't. Speak, yeah, yeah. I don't speak too. Um, like I don't post too much on uh, social media or anything like that. I don't do too much of that. But if anybody wants to, uh, you know, reach out or have a chat or send me a message or something, um, hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, that's probably the best way. Um, <clears throat> if you send me an invite, actually put a personalized message in terms of you know where you found me from or anything like that. Uh, yeah, that actually allows me to see that it's just not like a bot or something and um mm. yeah i'll accept it that way but um yeah that's probably the best way to reach me i'm i'm a little bit of a ghost on the rest of social media though yeah dope. well that's uh because there's possibly more than one james newen on linkedin that's there's about a million james, that's that's james newen um and you can also search inflection ai that's i-n-f-l-e-x-i-o-n AI and that's your your AI business you want to find out a little bit more what what James does now and you should be able to connect with him from there so right on, James man. brother thank you so much for doing this man um, and yeah we'll uh, I'll look forward to that next chat thanks for having me dude go alright guys it's bonus time you should have a ton of strategies to take away after that but even the best laid plans are pretty much worthless if you don't have the discipline to see them through but the good news is discipline, like everything, is a skill you can cultivate through practice, if you know how. So there are short 10-minute toolbox episodes available on my website for subscribers only, where each podcast guest gives you an extra edge with more actionable tools and techniques. If you want to hear James talk about exactly how he turned discipline from a weakness of his into a strength, simply jump over to whitebelt.com slash podcast. That's W-H-Y-T-B-E-L-T dot com slash podcast. Enter your email in the box there and I'll send you a link to access that as well as all past and all future Toolbox episodes. It's totally free. It's definitely worth it. Look out for the email, the password. I mean, the password email because you're going to need that one to get into the Toolbox page. That's all for me. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time.